Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Aviators on. Joe Biden stepped out of Air Force One and down the stairs into the Israeli sunshine. He fist-bumped Yair Lapid, then Israel's prime minister, and then stood on a red carpet laid across the tarmac as a military band played first the American and then the Israeli national anthems. The visit in July last year was Biden's 10th and most recent to Israel. You need not be a Jew to be a Zionist, the president said in a speech at the airport that day. That staunch support for Israel has been on full display in the past week in the aftermath of Hamas's horrifying attack. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what should... America's Middle East strategy be now. Israel is stepping up its strikes on Gaza as it responds to Hamas's assault. In recent years, the US has facilitated a warming in relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors, but that's now under threat. America was once thought of as the world's policeman. As conflict flares in the Middle East again, Can the administration prevent it from getting even worse? With me this week to talk about Hamas's atrocities in Israel, Israel's response and America's attempts to contain the violence are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun, who's back from Japan. Charlotte, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I am devastated by the ruthless murder of Israeli citizens. And I recommend listening to an interview that Zani Mittenbedos, our editor-in-chief, did with a leader of Hamas in which she really tears through the logic of a man who is trying to justify what can't be justified. And Idris, how are you? Uh, yeah, also okay. Obviously, this weekend was horrifying, and I'm afraid that I'm worried that it's it's going to continue. You know, right before we started recording, uh, I read that Israel had asked a million Gazans to relocate, presumably ahead of a ground invasion. I'm really uh, concerned about the probably thousands of, of people who are going to die now uh, and in the future, in addition to still being saddened and horrified by what happened last week. So, uh, yeah, it's not a good not a good situation. I should say we're recording this on Friday, so almost a week after the atrocities committed by Hamas in Israel took place. 
But before Israel's ground offensive, the ground offensive by the IDF, which many people are expecting to begin in the coming days, has started. Right. So The Economist is covering the war squarely in the magazine, online, on the intelligence. We're a show about American politics. And so we're talking about America's role, which is an important one as the situation evolves. And it's worth noting if there are parents listening who may be listening with their children, this will include discussion of the truly awful things happening right now. The violence is horrifying and hard to make sense of. We have a lot of people at The Economist who've spent time um, living in Israel, who've reported in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Anton Lagardia, who's our diplomatic editor, is the author of a great book about Israeli politics and Israeli history. He's based in Washington and has been thinking this week about the role America will play in all of this. I should say that Anton and I spoke yesterday, and since then there's been news that America and Qatar are freezing Iran's access to the $6 billion fund we discuss at one point in the conversation. But Anton began by explaining what, in practical terms, Israel wants from America now. I think it wants two things. First of all, it needs equipment and especially munitions for the war that it has promised to wage against Hamas. Wars, as we know, are very, very consuming of munitions, and Israel will be using a lot of precision-guided munitions, and it will probably also want artillery shells, and it may want some particularly specialist bits of equipment. It also needs air defense missiles for the Iron Dome system, and if it looks as though the war will spread, then it may well want additional air defense batteries from the Americans. The second thing it wants, I think, is diplomatic cover. It has vowed to destroy Hamas. Sometimes the language becomes more wanton. It talks about total siege of Gaza with no water, electricity, power, food. And therefore, the combination of the condition for civilians and the number of Palestinian civilians who are being killed will increase pressure on Israel to show restraint or to hold back and they don't want to be restrained. So I think they're hoping the Americans will act as diplomatic cover to keep the world off its back, at least for a time. Whether the United States is willing to play that role is more complicated. Let's turn to American politics and policy. Joe Biden came out with a very strong statement in support of Israel. I think that's been noted and appreciated in Israel. But American domestic politics being what it is, he's of course being criticized by some Republicans, at least, for his Middle East policy. And one of those criticisms that you hear is that by taking a different approach to Iran than the Trump administration, the Biden administration sort of emboldened Iran, its support for Hezbollah, and somehow encouraged Hamas. Can you walk us through that argument and whether it's true or not? I think there are two criticisms. One, a general one, which is that he has eased the policy of maximum pressure against Iran in general, B, that he has, in specific terms, done this deal over American detainees, which involved the release of some Iranian funds, which are now in escrow or not in Iranian hands, but are in escrow to pay for food and so on. So on the general policy, the Biden administration tried to do something which I thought was sensible, which is to try and get Iran back into the JCPOA. This is the Iran deal 
under which Iran limited its nuclear program in exchange for some lifting of sanctions. That was signed by Barack Obama and torn up by Donald Trump. That didn't happen. Iran has moved closer to having a nuclear weapon. It's enriched a lot of uranium. So the situation on that front is worse. But he tried. On the specific point about the prisoners, well, there are people who have accused Biden of allowing money to flow to Iran and therefore to Hamas, leading directly to this terrible massacre of civilians. I think that is overstated. I think the connecting links are dotted rather than direct. For example, this operation will have been planned for months, if not years. The hostages came out in September. So the timescales don't work. Where I do think that Joe Biden is vulnerable is that he has been seen to try to accommodate Iran and the regime which funds a group which has just killed 1,200 people in the most wanton fashion imaginable. And I think that makes him vulnerable, that he looks like a dupe for having tried to be friends with Iran. And I think that does weaken him. And I think his response to that will be to hug Israel close. And I think that comes out of his personal conviction, but also out of a political need. He cannot allow himself to have distance between him and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, a man whom he disagreed with and actually tried to keep slightly at arm's length until now. Anton, last week you and I were in Washington together and we did a few meetings talking to people about America's Ukraine policy. One of the things that you've written about in this week's Economist is the linkage between America's support for Ukraine and support for Israel. And I found that really interesting. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because the story of America's support for Ukraine is it seems to be you know, wobbling, at least among Republicans. Meanwhile, the support for Israel is incredibly strong, but the two might become linked, right? Yes, they will, for two reasons. First of all, the paralysis in Congress over the budget has been a real sign of dysfunction. As listeners will remember, they averted a shutdown narrowly by passing through a continuing resolution which keeps the government open for another 45 days. The cost of doing that was to stop aid for Ukraine. And that is because now a growing minority of Republicans are opposed to funding a seemingly endless and expensive war. Now, with Israel happening, I think two things are set in motion. First, a sense that the crisis in the world means Republicans have to get their act together and have to come up with a speaker and get the House functioning because Israel will be asking for money and help from Congress and Congress will want to give it. But it probably will not be able to pass money bills until there is a speaker and the legislature is functioning. This is particularly the House. The second thing I think that is happening is that the Ukraine supporters, including the White House, will probably want to package aid for Ukraine with aid for Israel. So Israel would act as a sort of political sweetener to make the pill of further Ukraine aid digestible. And it's a very fat pill. I don't know whether you were given cod liver oil as a child, John, but it's a very fat pill. And it's going to get fatter because they want to pass a bill that will take Ukraine through the whole year. So that's probably about 100 billion or something slightly short of that. Israel will need less than that because it's fighting a smaller war, in effect, 
nasty as Hamas will be. So they will probably try to wrap those together in the hope that some Ukraine skeptics will vote for it. The other sweetener could be a package of aid for Taiwan, in a sense, doing for Taiwan what has been done for Ukraine, which is to arm it and turn it into a porcupine and make it very hard to digest, but do it before it is invaded rather than after. And I think those three things might make it all possible, but it's still difficult and nobody really knows how it's going to play out, not least because we don't yet have a speaker. Idris, we've seen a lot of rhetorical support for Israel, including from Republican politicians, though Donald Trump has ever managed to come up with some quite bizarre stuff. But the House GOP still doesn't have a speaker. We were expecting Steve Scalise to get the job. His support seems to have evaporated. And now the GOP caucus is back to square one, seemingly. It sort of matters that there's no Republican speaker at the moment when it comes to America's attempts to make policy towards Israel and Hamas? Yeah, I think it matters a lot because the speaker is the person who can organize and herd the cats that are the Republican caucus into actually passing some sort of uh, coherent legislation, whether that's to keep the government open or to possibly fund Ukraine or Israel or Taiwan. At the moment, you know, we're in an unprecedented situation where the speaker has been deposed and the acting speaker, uh, McHenry, has vague powers. Now, the rule that basically allowed him to become speaker was one drafted after 9-11. So it's one basically contemplating, you know, the speaker being killed and replaced. So I think that if it were the case that, it, that the House really needed to do something and they still hadn't elected a speaker, a simple majority of the House could vote to give McHenry the powers that that he needed um, in that case. But obviously, the cleaner resolution would be for Republicans to get together and actually pick a speaker. I think that's unlikely to happen in the next few days, given the chaos of the moment. But also, I think that uh, if they had elected a speaker, you know, the money for Ukraine would be tough. Already, there are Republicans who are saying that the combining of an aid package for Ukraine and Israel would be unpalatable and they think it should be off the table. This should be voted on separately. That suggests to me that uh, they would approve more funding to Israel for Iron Dome and other munitions, but the, the Ukraine funding would have a much tougher time. So the speaker drama definitely hurts, but I don't think it ultimately means that uh, once Republicans pick a speaker that they'll send money to Ukraine. I, I don't see that happening. To take a step back, I think it's important to maybe outline what America should be trying to do in this moment. What is a reasonable American goal? And then the second question is, does America have the capacity to advance that goal? Does it have partners in the Middle East to advance that goal? Because everything you just described, Patrice, is so chaotic politically. But to start a bit at first principles, I think given the horror that is unfolding, what is an American goal and what's a realistic American goal? So I think the broader goal ideally would be to stop any further killing of civilians, not have Hezbollah enter the war from the north, not have Iranian involvement, not have this spiral out of control, eventually find a Palestinian leader that is acceptable to both sides that is not pursuing the eradication of Israel itself. And so those are a lot of things that are really hard to achieve, and what are the tools to achieve them? So you have Blinken, who thankfully is a real grown-up in the room, doing his best, and he was in Israel this week, pledging support for Israel, also warning against the killing of 
Palestinian civilians, rightly expressing his horror of images of uh, Israeli baby shot and young people burned alive. And he uh, is very explicit about trying to contain further activity. He said he would travel to Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and Qatar. I mean, he's really going to be around urging them to, quote, use their leverage with Hamas to immediately and unconditionally release hostages. They've sent a huge aircraft carrier, uh, the USS Gerald Ford, and two other ships. America said that it will do what it needs to to keep Israel safe. I mean, there is stuff that can be done diplomatically, but the issue, of course, is that there's a limit to America's control over this situation because of the nature of the response that Netanyahu may pursue because of Hezbollah's activity and then because you have murderous fanatics who are in Gaza and have a very clear mission. Yeah, Charlotte, I think you're right to take this back to first principles. I mean, America's primary aim here has to be, whilst supporting Israel, to minimize the violence that will follow over the next few days. And that's something I think we have to say where America has limited power. That's largely in the hands of the Israeli government. It's their decision. And then goal two, it has to, as you say, has to be to prevent this conflict from sucking in other regional powers. And there, at the moment at least, I'm relatively optimistic. I mean, America has pretty good relations with most of Israel's immediate neighbors at the moment. You know, Egypt, Jordan, Syria is preoccupied with other things at the moment. And also, those countries themselves have relatively good relations with Israel compared with where they have been over the past 50 years. And so, Joe Biden issued this warning, which I guess was directed to Iran and Hezbollah. You know, if you're thinking about taking advantage of this, don't. But it's not the case that lots of Israel's other neighbors are going to use this, I think, as a kind of opportunity to attack Israel. The initial response from Biden was not one that mentioned uh, restraint. And so I think it is good that Blinken, when he was in Israel, he said, how Israel does this matters. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard. That's why it's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. I think that's, that was a necessary and, and good thing that, that he said. And if America is is going to be providing aid, it can, it can obviously try to put conditions on that aid. So I think that there is some amount that, that America could do to avoid the uh, kind of needless uh, uh, killing. Which, you know, in itself, I think one of the sad things about all of this is that you step back and think, where are we going to be in a year? And it's hard to imagine that, you know, things will be any different. And even even if the Israeli operation is a success and Hamas is eradicated, which I think is, you know, questionable even, even with a ground invasion, what comes after? You know, I don't think it's the kind of peace process that, that, that we'd hope for. Obviously, everyone is thinking day to day. But if you think year to year, it's hard to imagine how the situation changes. Yeah, it's been clear from the beginning that America supports, as does this newspaper, retaliation. It's just the nature of that retaliation. Yes, that's right. All right, we'll go back 50 years to another surprise attack on Israel in a moment. But first, Charlotte and Idris, what do you think has particularly stood out from our coverage of the war this week? Um, I, I thought our leader that we put on the cover this week was incredibly good, uh, written under, obviously, the most intense emotional circumstances. Many of us have friends and family who are in the region, and it's hard to, I think, try to be rational and, and try to sketch out an actual 
path. And I think that, that our leader does make a really valiant attempt at that. And I think it's one of the best pieces of writing on the subject that I've come across this week. I wholeheartedly endorse that. And just generally, our coverage of the assault on Israel and consideration of what comes next, I think, has been particularly clear-eyed, nuanced, informed by decades of experience reporting on the region. I just think it's been really, really good. And I'll make a second recommendation of Zanny's interview, uh, which was on the intelligence on Thursday. Yes, the intelligence's coverage of the war every day has been very good. It is an all-out war. That's how Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan describes an invasion of the Golan Heights and the east bank of the Suez by Syria and Egypt. The surprise attack came 50 years and a day before Hamas's brutal assault on Israel. The resumption of the war in the Middle East is a serious setback of plans the President and Secretary Kissinger had for developing a new climate of peace in that part of the world. In October 1973, President Nixon was distracted by the growing Watergate scandal. America's response to the Yom Kippur, or Arab-Israeli war, was essentially led by Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger. We've told you everything that we can say. I'm in close touch with the president. America had to walk a fine line. It needed to support Israel without antagonizing the Arab states it depended on for oil. It also wanted to preserve its detente with the Soviet Union. At first, America didn't send arms, believing Israel would win easily. But the Soviets had resupplied Egypt and Syria, and Israel was struggling. America agreed to provide arms and military aid. In some ways, it became a proxy conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The U.S. was then as now very closely allied with Israel, and the Soviet Union was allied with Egypt and Syria. The Economist's Lexington columnist, James Bennett, used to cover the Middle East. But, I mean, the war really tested the framework of detente that Nixon had begun to put in place in 1969, his effort to sort of calm the tensions of the Cold War, establish open communications with the Soviet Union. So there was a framework of great power conflict that was present from the start. With American weapons in hand, Israel began to make gains. Egypt, via the Soviets, sought a ceasefire, and Henry Kissinger stepped into action. Secretary General Brezhnev sent an urgent request to President Nixon that I be sent to Moscow to conduct the negotiations in order to speed an end to hostilities that might be difficult to contain were they to continue. On October 20th, Kissinger flew to Moscow and negotiated peace terms with Leonid Brezhnev. We spent two days of very intense negotiations and we developed a formula which we believe was acceptable to all of the parties. But what happened next brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. Although the ceasefire resolution was adopted by the UN Security Council, it didn't hold. The Soviets suggested sending in troops. There was a proposal, for example, that joined U.S. and Soviet military forces be introduced into the Middle East to bring about an observance of the ceasefire. America refused, 
but believed that the Soviets would send in troops anyway. This was unacceptable to Richard Nixon. I ordered shortly after midnight on Thursday morning a alert for all American forces around the world. This was a precautionary alert. Uh, the purpose of that was to indicate to the Soviet Union that uh, we could not accept uh, any unilateral move on their part to move military forces into the Mideast. On October 25th, America issued a DEFCON 3 alert, putting its forces on standby to launch a nuclear strike within 15 minutes. It's only been used once since, after the 9-11 attacks. The crisis was averted when, later that day, another ceasefire was agreed. This time, the fighting stopped, and the nuclear alert was rescinded. The Yom Kippur War lasted less than three weeks, and Israel regained the land that had initially been lost. But there were thousands dead on both sides, and Israel's sense of security was irrevocably shaken. For America, it was a sort of victory. I guess, in the end... It was a success because there wasn't a nuclear war. That's a pretty low bar, though. James Bennett again. It was, you know, a very, very severe test of whether the U.S. and the Soviet Union could navigate a really fraught international crisis and understand each other and ultimately calm the waters. And they did. But the U.S. did not emerge unscathed. Not only had it gone to the brink of nuclear war, Arab states had issued an oil embargo in response to America's involvement. This remained until the following March, placing a huge strain on the U.S. economy. It was also a foreign policy reality check. I think the Yom Kippur War made clear to Nixon, if he ever had allusions to the contrary, that there were just inevitably going to be strategic consequences for the United States of Israel's fraught, tense, sometimes belligerent relationships with its Arab neighbors. Presidents since then have, and certainly this one, Joe Biden, has entertained the hope, at least, of deprioritizing the Middle East in favor of other geopolitical hotspots and other long-term challenges. But I think, you know, once again, we learn the tragic reality that America remains indispensable to maintaining stability in the region and some hope for long-term peace. Charlotte, this attack from Hamas seems to have been timed to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which Israel's Arab neighbours for a long time thought of as a great humiliation. And that timing, of course, seems to be no accident. But Israel finds itself in quite a different situation to the one it was in in 1973. And apart from the timing, the differences seem greater than the similarities here. So I think it's right in terms of the nature of the of the violence to date and the environment in which Hamas waged these attacks. But I'm not entirely sure that this won't have enormous consequences in the way that the other conflict did, too. I mean, back then you had a broad number of actors involved, so principally Egypt and Syria, but as we heard, uh, many other countries in the Middle East as well as Russia supporting 
Arab countries. But it wasn't a ripple of events that followed after. It was a real wave. I mean, you had the Arab oil embargo with Arab countries embargoing oil exports to the U.S. It just changed the shape of the Middle East. It changed the shape of energy markets. It was a really transformative series of events. So now you have a situation in which the environment is very different than it was in 1973. Uh, Jake Sullivan just a few weeks ago said that the Middle East is quieter than it had been in decades, which obviously doesn't seem particularly prescient, but he has some reason to say that, right, because American presence in Iraq is relatively stable. Uh, There's a truce with Yemen. You have the Abraham Accords, which were signed under President Trump's watch, organized by his administration, in which you had four Arab countries normalizing relations with Israel, including the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. You had talks starting up with Saudi Arabia. So it just is a very different environment. But I don't know if this war will have really huge impacts the way that the 1973 war did. And I think that that's going to be decided in the coming days. Will this cause as lasting a shift? What is the nature of the change that will follow? All that is is going to be decided today, tomorrow, in the weeks to come. And so even though the environment is really different, I think the consequences have the potential to be huge. I think also uh, another big difference at the time of the Yom Kippur War, Israel was roughly 25 years old. It was relatively new. Uh, Its position was not as strong as it is now militarily. I think that there is no one who doubts the outcome of of the war in terms of of who might win and what the chances are of that. Uh, Israel's developed uh, a lot uh, growth-wise democratically, although it's had issues lately and, and certainly militarily. So I think that the chance of a, a wide invasion from other countries seems at the moment to be low, and I hope it is. I hope it does not happen. The other difference is that the Arab states have changed their nature to the Palestinian question. Um, back then, uh, the Sunni states, uh, Egypt and Syria, who thought of themselves as kind of the vanguard of, of Sunni uh, Islam, were the ones whose militaries were pledged um, and, and who invaded. And that is no longer the case. Uh, the Egyptians are, in fact, uh, extremely um, opposed to opening a humanitarian corridor for Palestinians to uh, evacuate from Gaza, even though that's the most natural place for them to go. Um, there is a perception among the Sunni Arab states that uh, wherever Palestinians go, war and civil war and, and, and discord follow. Um, and so you've seen this inversion now where the two primary backers of the Palestinian cause are, are Shia Arabs. They're Iran and, and, and Hezbollah, which is an interesting um, kind of change w- within the region. So all of those things, I think, collectively, um, in addition to being interesting, suggest to me that you know there's not going to be, uh, and I hope there won't be, a, a kind of recapitulation of this all-out regional war um, that we saw 50 years ago. But again, I don't, I, I remain pessimistic about, you know, what the situation looks like a year from now or five years from now. I, I think it's, for many people, for most all of their lives, there's been constant conflict and death uh, in the region, and it's hard to imagine that. To Charlotte's point, it is really hard to know what the wider ramifications of what's happened this week will be. I mean, clearly the most important of those will be in the Middle East and, and in Israel itself. But if you just think about American politics and the effect, the spillover of the Yom Kippur War, I mean, you could make a case that the Yom Kippur War 
leads to the Arab oil embargo. The Arab oil embargo leads to the development of America's domestic oil and gas industry, which has huge effects for America and the rest of the world. It also sets off a bout of inflation that politicians in America really struggle to get under control, politicians and the Fed. And that high inflation, that stagflation in America in the 1970s, is one of the factors that leads to Ronald Reagan beating Jimmy Carter in the 1980 presidential election. So all of those, you could say, flowed from the Yom Kippur War in in 1973. There is a school of thought in America at the moment that's very popular that America can just wall itself off from what happens in the rest of the world, from isolationism. The recent history of the Middle East suggests that that is just not true. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from one of our colleagues who's been reporting from Israel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Josie Delap is The Economist's Middle East editor. When I spoke to her yesterday, she was in Tel Aviv, and she told me how things have been there over the past week. Things are definitely tense in Tel Aviv at the moment and have been since Saturday. It's mostly out of the range of rocket fire, so we don't get very many of the rocket alerts that you get further south. There's an app called Red Alert which tells you when you've got missiles incoming and on Saturday I had it set up where you get the alerts, you know, your phone sort of gives you the notification with the alert. And so on Saturday morning, I just had this constant stream of red alerts. Not for Tel Aviv, but more for the South, as I say. Since then, it's been very, very quiet, at least around where we live. The advice from the government at the moment, from the IDF, is that you have to stay within a minute and a half of a shelter room. Lots of buildings have them. Our house has one in the basement. They're reinforced rooms with a heavy door that locks from the inside. So when a siren goes off, you have a minute and a half to get to your shelter and then you stay there for 10 minutes unless another siren goes off. And the idea for that mostly is to avoid any falling debris. And so the fact that you have to always be within a minute and a half of one means that moving around the city is quite hard because you would have to know where another one was if you left your home or where you usually went. And obviously, lots of stuff is just closed. In terms of Israel's relations with the rest of the world, I want to start with the relationship with America. What do you think now, specifically, do Israelis want from America? There have been a lot of expressions of support from America for Israel and for Israelis, a few dissenting voices, but I think they're a very small minority. What beyond that sort of warm rhetoric and expressions of solidarity. What does Israel and Israel's government want from the US now? I mean, I think that the solidarity has been incredibly important. You know, in one of the local WhatsApp groups, people were exchanging screenshots of newspaper front page that had 
Joe Biden and the quote, you know, if, if anybody is thinking of taking advantage of this, don't. So I think that has struck people here, especially given that Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, have not had the warmest relationship since Netanyahu came back into government in November last year. You know, that relationship has been strained as a result of the very controversial judicial reforms that this Israeli government has been trying to push through. So I think that that has already really struck Israelis, that support. America's obviously sending military support and Israel has drafted over 300,000 reservists. It's hard to imagine just how much equipment that needs. Again, on this, whatever kind of support America is giving, I think is being hugely appreciated at the moment in Israel, given that there was this concern about exactly what the state of the relationship was under this current Israeli government. And Josie, in terms of relations with countries in the region, over the past few years, you've been writing about this process of normalization, the Abraham Accords, peace treaties between Israel and some of its neighbors. One that seemed to be on the horizon was a peace treaty between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That presumably is less likely now, or at least will be much delayed. It's early to start thinking about the wider ramifications of this. What's your thinking about how this changes relations between Israel and its neighbours? I mean, it's hard to know exactly how things are going to unfold. As you say, the Saudi-Israel normalisation deal is the one that has been on everyone's minds of late. And I think there was a real sense that we thought that the American administration wanted to push it through by the end of the year before the American election sort of takes over everybody's minds completely. And that would have been a significant foreign policy achievement for Biden to have taken into the election year. One of the difficulties of that deal has been what the Saudis demand on the part of the Palestinians in order to normalise relations with Israel and what Israel, particularly this Israeli government, was willing to give. On the one hand, it feels like this completely stymies those efforts. It's hard to imagine how the Saudis could sign a deal with Israel in the aftermath of what is widely assumed to be a devastating assault on Gaza. On the other hand, after the first intifada, which was another horrible, violent episode in Israel and the Palestinians' histories, we saw the Oslo Peace Accords. And that's not to suggest sort of simplistically that peace is going to come out of these horrendous, horrendous events. But I think that one thing that the last few days have shown us is how utterly impossible the status quo is. It's clear that Israel's strategy of cutting Hamas off in Gaza and hoping that they can contain the threat is not going to work in the long term. And so a view of Palestinians' future, of the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians, that needs to change. Something else needs to come out of this. And that would be an optimistic vision of what might come out of this horror. Idris Josie ended there by making the point that we made in the cover leader this week, which you and Charlotte rightly praised a bit earlier in the podcast. I mean, Israel's strategy, which during the Trump administration was also the administration's policy, you know, the Trump administration's strategy was to essentially try and contain and ignore the sovereignty or the rights of Palestinians in the hope that that was a problem that could just be delayed indefinitely. 
And it's hard to talk about this without sounding like the attack by Hamas was somehow the fault of the Israeli government, which it's clearly not. Hamas bears responsibility for that. Nevertheless, it's also true that Bibi Netanyahu has been, for the Biden administration and for administrations before the Trump administration, other than the Trump administration, a particularly difficult partner to deal with. Yeah, the Obama administration was infuriated with him when he came to America, gave a speech to Congress and denounced the Iranian nuclear deal. He hasn't gotten along with Barack Obama. Tensions were there with Joe Biden as well. And interestingly, despite how warm their relationship was while Donald Trump was in office, Donald Trump actually has it in for Netanyahu because he called Biden to congratulate him after his victory. So even in the throes of this attack, you know, you could see Trump not giving up on that petty grievance that he has with Netanyahu. But you're right, you know, it's hard to zoom out in the immediate aftermath of a heinous attack like this. But the two-state solution that both sides are supposed to be working towards has been on indefinite hiatus. There is no one who thinks that Benjamin Netanyahu is committed to it. You know, the idea clearly seemed to be that if Gaza were blockaded and monitored and settlements continued in the West Bank, that somehow this issue would be contained and maybe would go away in a generation or two. At the same time, as our briefing points out this week, the Palestinian governance is a mess. Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, who's 87 years old, hasn't stepped foot in Gaza in the last 20 years and last won an election in 2006. So, you know, the plausible alternative is hopeless at the moment. So when you have 2 million people, as is the case in Gaza, crammed into an area where poverty is high, blockading is high, moderate alternatives are diminished, you get movements like Hamas. And even if you get rid of Hamas, I worry that you get more violent movements that come out of it. And so the hope would be that something like Oslo comes out of this conflict. I would be delighted if that happened. Although I think balance of probabilities is that it might not because I don't know who the interlocutor would be on the Palestinian side to actually get something like that through. There isn't really a credible moderate uh, Palestinian authority. It's certainly not Abbas as far as I can tell. I wish I were in the room with Tony Blinken as he makes his tour of other Arab states this week because, of course, he's trying to deter military involvement, but I wonder if he's trying to encourage other kinds of involvement to put pressure on Hamas and put pressure to try to reach a solution that is at the very least stable. I think it's worth noting the difference in scale of America's ambitions in the Middle East. Not that long ago, there was a hope of advancing democracy and American ideals, and now it really does feel like it's about stability so that America can deal with these other enormous problems, the war in Ukraine, of course, and the attempt to contain Chinese aggression towards Taiwan being the two biggest, of course. But I think as Tony Blinken does go around and do what he should be doing in terms of trying to bring some stability out of this conflict, that it's so interesting to look at Trump himself. I mean, his speeches are just very strange on this for a person who is positioning himself to be the next president again. So he's criticizing Netanyahu. He's calling Hezbollah smart. Not surprisingly, he's talking about Biden being an agent of chaos and terror. The Republicans themselves have this ad out that I was emailed this morning that showed Biden presiding over chaos and saying that Iran was emboldened with Joe Biden, our enemies grow stronger and America grows weaker. So in some ways, it's very predictable. But I find Trump himself to be truly strange in his comments on this. 
And so I think the most important thing, of course, is the humanitarian concerns that Tony Blinken is trying to advance in the coming days and will continue to try to advance in the coming weeks. And then beyond that, as John mentioned earlier, there are going to be all kinds of ripple effects from this, not least of which will be political ones, depending on how the war is or is not contained. And so I think we'll see this feature quite heavily in next year's election. Yes, Charlotte, to your point, it seems like American policy in the Middle East is stuck in a historical spiral which it struggles to escape from. So after the Yom Kippur War, the priority really was stability. And that was, of course, in a Cold War context when America was propping up or supporting lots of autocratic regimes around the world on the condition that they didn't go red. America, through decades after Yom Kippur, supported dictatorial Arab regimes in the region and discouraged them from making war again on Israel. Then after 9-11, you have this different approach, as you say, a much more ambitious approach, the idea of spreading democracy through the region, an idea that this support for dictators had had its day and was counterproductive. And then you have the Iraq war and the failures of that war and a desire to get out of the region. And shortly afterwards, the Arab Spring, which initially looks so hopeful for democracy in the Middle East and then disappoints. And America finds itself, you know, once again, backing an autocratic regime in Israel's neighbor, Egypt, after the experience there of the Muslim Brotherhood being in charge. And so now American policy, it seems, is back to stability, because that seems best for Israel. It seems best for now for the neighborhood. And that's the thing that might allow, as you say, America to focus on some other foreign policy problems. But it comes with its own cost. The one thing that doesn't seem to be on the menu is America extricating itself from the Middle East in a way that was the wish of Barack Obama when he was elected in 2008, Donald Trump when he was elected in 2016. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor's hope, as Charlotte said already. But that seems to be the one thing America just cannot do. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. Before we go, thank you to everyone who signed up for Economist Podcasts Plus. If you haven't or you're not already an Economist subscriber, then soon you won't be able to listen to Checks and Balance. Thank you to all the thousands of listeners who have signed up already. If you'd like to join them, then just Google Economist Podcasts Plus and you'll find the link. If you sign up before we launch on October 24th, you'll be able to take advantage of our half-price offer. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. James Stickland and Nicola Rofast are our sound engineers. Thank you to our listener, Ryan, who works at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and helped us with sourcing the clips of Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon that you heard earlier. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.